0: Good morning, church. Uh, It it is great to see you today. Uh, We are just uh, so thrilled that uh, we get to worship together. Um, And I I hope that what we sang um, about the goodness of God... And it being well with our soul is true, no, ma- no matter what we're going through, right? It's not based on our circumstances, it's, it's based on who Jesus is. And even as I just think about uh, all the different things that uh, were momentous in, in our lives this week as a family, um, yesterday we got to celebrate the one-year anniversary of us adopting two of our children. Um, and so that was awesome. Um, Many of you celebrated that with us last year, um, and we are so thankful. Um, By by the way, if if we, we, we thought that we were going to be able to get thank you notes to everyone that did stuff for us last year uh, for our adoption, and I must admit that we did not get to everyone. And so if you didn't get a thank you note from us, just know we are very thankful for you. Um, and I, as it was a year later, and I was looking at that, I was like, oh man, we probably did not get as many out as we needed to. But we are just so thankful for you and uh, how you've supported our family, and we were glad to be able to uh, celebrate that uh, together. Um, and then at the same time, uh, this week was also... Um, would have also been the, the birthday uh, for my wife Becca's brother, Andrew, uh, who died a few years ago. He would have been 39 uh, this week. And, and I, I present both those things to you to say that our peace is not, and, and our joy and our confidence in the goodness of God is, does not change based on what we go through in this life. Whether we are remembering the death of a loved one or celebrating the adoption of our children, God is still faithful, and God is still good, and we can have a peace in our souls no matter what comes, and and that's sort of the destination of where we are heading this morning in John chapter 16. But before we get into that, I I do want to let you know that, that next weekend, uh, is going to be a little different because I'm going to be with our students uh, at Winter Blast at Camp Orchard Hill. Will and, and the other youth leaders and I are going to be there with them. This is going to be my first time back at Winter Blast in like six years, and so we'll see how much of a has been I am um, when it comes to that. Um, that. That's that's okay. I haven't slept on a camp bed in a minute, but that's okay. Um, looking forward to it, um, and. And uh, that means that you will have the privilege next week, if you are here, of hearing a message from Pastor Randy Bookman. And many of you know Pastor Randy, who was a pastor here at FBC back in the day. Um, I I believe he started pastoring here before I was born, if you want an idea of how long it's been. Um, You can tell him I said that, too. That's just fine. Um, And then he went from here and pastored in Maryland for over two decades. Uh, But he retired last year, and we always enjoy having him back. Um, uh, We love him. So many of you love him as well. And so you can be praying for our students and our youth leaders next weekend, uh, and then you can enjoy benefiting from Pastor Randy opening God's Word uh, with us uh, next Sunday. Um, But for today, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 16. Uh, And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to grab the one that's right in front of you, you can open to page 903, and that is where uh, you will find John chapter 16. Uh, And while you're doing that, if you are a guest with us, we always want to start our time in God's Word by letting you know that we believe uh, that the Bible that we are opening right now is the inspired Word of God. Uh, inerrant in the, original, in the original manuscripts and then sovereignly preserved for us through the generation. So we believe that through the reading of this book and the illumination of his spirit, we can know God. We can love him, follow him, worship him, and we believe so much in the sufficiency of scripture that we honestly don't think that what I'm about to say today really matters at all unless it agrees with what God's word says. We want to collectively be a church that believes that it really doesn't matter what I think. It really doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And just a warning, if you come to the conclusion that the Bible is your ultimate authority, that changes your life. It changes so much about how you make decisions and how you view your life and the world. And, and so I don't just want you to take my word for it, but I want you to know where we stand. And this is why we want you to see God's word for yourself today in John 16, because I don't really have anything of any value for you unless it comes from God's Word. And, and we've been in John 15 through 17, uh, which contains the farewell discourse of Jesus. His last words of instruction uh, that Jesus gave to his closest followers before heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be arrested and then later crucified. And, and the fact that these are his last words doesn't make them more inspired or All of God's word is true and valuable. It it is just unique to have a window into this conversation on the last day of Jesus's life when he knows, he knows it's the last day of his earthly life. He he knows what what is coming. And as Jesus shares his heart with the disciples, our desire for this series has been that our hearts would align with Jesus's heart for us. We, We want to want what Jesus wants because what he wants for us is better than whatever we think we want for ourselves, and, and as we 've gone through these passages in, in chapters fifteen and sixteen i 've realized that we could have taken this, this desire, this goal one step further uh, because because this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples isn 't just about jesus heart for us, this passage is also jesus is also Jesus sharing his promises to us, his promises. For us, that Jesus didn't walk towards his death hurling threats at his enemies, but rather prom- providing promises for his followers. He didn't walk towards his death hurling threats at his enemies, but rather providing promises for his followers. Um, and, and we've seen just promise after promise as we've gone through these two chapters. He's repeatedly promised that even though he's going away, it's okay. The Holy Spirit is going to come. It's even better to have the Holy Spirit in you than Jesus next to you. He has promised that the Spirit was going to inspire the apostles to write Scripture that we now know as the New Testament. He, he has promised, or you could say warned them, that the world is not necessarily going to treat them Well, this world isn't our home field. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus promise that he's going to be crucified, but that he will also rise again. The disciples were going to have sorrow for a little while, but their sorrow was going to instantaneously turn to joy when they saw the risen Christ. Uh, This is another reason why there is no greater question you can answer than the question of whether Jesus truly rose from the dead. Do you know that to be true? Do do you really believe that? Why is that so important? Because he promised. That's what he promised he would do. If Jesus didn't rise, if if Resurrection Sunday is just a fairy tale, then we are gathering today to worship a dead liar, which doesn't make much sense, right? You have better things to do with your time uh, than to do that. But if Jesus rose from the dead just As he said, just as he promised, then we are gathering today to worship the one true Savior and King who is not just worthy of our Sunday morning, he's worthy of all of our lives, right? It's Christ exalted over all. To him alone, our praise belongs. Jesus is the only source of true joy that can't be taken away because our joy isn't found in our circumstances, but in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. That's what we saw last week. And this morning, we are going to see the last nine verses in chapter 16, and then Pastor Randy's going to be in the book of Acts next week, and then in two weeks we will pick up chapter 17, and we are going to see Jesus' prayer, what's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus for his disciples and for us. So, so that means that this passage is Jesus' last words before saying, let's pray. Right? The end of chapter 16 is Jesus' last words before saying, let's pray. And, and he is going to reiterate a lot of themes that we've seen the past few weeks. So let's look at John 16, 25 through 33, and then we're going to walk back through it together. Jesus said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father His disciple says, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Are you sure? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As we walk through this passage, Keep in mind that that is the destination of Jesus' words to his disciples. Jesus' destination in this passage is claiming that he has overcome the world. A world that while promising freedom actually wants to hold us captive. A world that holds us back while promising progress. It, it's ironic that this is the way things work because people often present following Jesus as restrictive, right? People say that being a Christian, right, there's all these things that you can't do. It restricts you and who you really are. But, but Jesus' argument is actually that's what the world does. The world is what holds you back. The world is what restricts you. The world is what holds you captive. And and Jesus came and was going to the cross in part to provide us with something much greater than what the world can provide. And in this passage, we are going to see that Jesus wants us to have a greater understanding, greater access, greater faith, and greater peace, even in the face of greater trouble. That's our outline Uh, as we go through this, and so we're just going to go back up to verse 25, and we're going to walk through these words together to see if we can understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, In verse 25, he says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So here, Jesus is promising that they will have greater understanding. They will have greater understanding understanding. And I, and I love that Jesus acknowledges in verse 25 what you may feel at times when you read Jesus's words, which is that Jesus didn't always come right out and communicate in a simple, straightforward way, did he? Uh, he used a lot of figures of speech throughout his ministry, which are beneficial to us now that we have the whole picture, right? Now that we see it all in front of us. But if you're trying to put that puzzle together for the very first time, it, it can be difficult to understand. Right? For exa- have you ever read Jesus' words in the Gospels and thought, why does Jesus talk like this? Right? Have you ever thought that? It's okay. You can be honest. About it. Like, well, Jesus, what are you, like, wh- why don't you just come out and say it? Why, why do you talk like this? Why in John chapter 2 did he say, destroy this temple and I will rebe- and, re- and I will rebuild it in three days? Speaking about his own body, not the literal temple. Right? Like, why didn't he just say, if you kill me, I will rise again? Right? Why, 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 why didn't he do that? Um, think about the I am statements that we went through in the Gospel of John last year. I am living water. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the vine. Why did Jesus talk like this? Well, we know that Jesus taught in parables at times, so that those who believed in him would understand even more, but that the religious leaders and those that had repeatedly rejected Jesus would just be more confused. But that's not what he's talking about here. Because here he's talking to his disciples who believe in him, who believe in him. And and the figure of speech he was probably referencing was what we covered last week. A little while, and you will not see me, and then a little while and you will see me. And the disciples, if you remember, they're like, "We don't get that at all. Like, we we don't understand. We don't understand what you're saying." And, and the reason for that, I believe, is that Jesus really, throughout his ministry, was predicting his death in such a way that would be easy to see and understand once those events unfolded, but not before, because if the disciples knew what was about to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, they would probably have tried to keep Jesus from going there. But Jesus was almost there. His hour to go to the cross, to provide forgiveness and redemption for us, had arrived. Which means, he says in verse 25, that the hour was coming, indeed it was here, after his resurrection, where he would speak with his followers, and it would all make sense to them. And, and there were 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And in that time, he would appear to different groups of people, including his disciples, and he spoke to them. And, and on the other side of the cross, an empty tomb, it would finally make sense. They would finally be able to understand what had been so baffling to them. It would all be plain, Jesus is promising here. And, and the good news for us is that this hour has already come, right? We're we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the empty tomb. We have the completed word of God to give us this greater understanding of of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And and the reason that we shouldn't gloss over this is because a greater understanding of Jesus is what leads us to a greater love for Jesus. Uh, I, I agree with Stephen Lawson, who says that while it is possible to have a knowledge of Jesus without a love for Jesus. I I think we get that, right? It is possible and dangerous to have a head knowledge about Jesus, but to not have it impact and transform and change our hearts. But on the other side of that coin, we also need to realize that our love for Jesus will never exceed our knowledge of Jesus because you can't truly love what you don't know. Uh, And I think we get that on a human level like right away. Right? This is why many people don't feel loved, because they don't feel like anyone really knows them. Right? And, and maybe you think, if, if people did know the real me, they wouldn't love me, because they wouldn't love what they know. This is why it's hard for parents to not roll your eyes when your teenager first thinks they're in love. Right? Right? Because what are you thinking as a parent in that moment? You're thinking, you don't even know what love is. And even if you did, you don't even know that person, right? You barely know them. You don't really know who they are. How could you know if you love them yet? Uh, this, this is why God is seeking people to worship him in spirit, right? Passionately and in truth. And in truth. Because we can't create our own version of God and then claim to love the true God, right? The more we learn about Jesus, the more reasons we have to love Jesus, And the more we love him, the more we should want to know him. The more we know him, the more we should love him. This is why we constantly seek a greater understanding. A greater understanding, which Jesus promises to the disciples here. Look at verse 26. In that day, after my resurrection, you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Okay, these verses are amazing. Jesus is not only promising greater understanding, but also greater access. He, he once again brings up prayer. Talking to the Father in Jesus' name for what feels like the tenth time in these two chapters. Doesn't it feel that way? Just every week, he's coming back to this principle of prayer, which probably means we should pay attention. Um, probably means that just a guess. So why is Jesus teaching on this so much? It's because the death and resurrection of Jesus was going to dramatically change how we approach God the Father. And I, I don't think the disciples had, could really understand how significant this would be yet. Because from the beginning of Israel's history, even the setup of the temple, right, where God's earthly presence was manifest among his people, the setup of the temple was designed to communicate that we can't have direct access to God the Father, right? God's presence, which was represented in the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, not even the priests were allowed into that space, except for the high priest once a year. There was the, and the, they only came to make a sacrifice on the altar, and, and, and there was this, this giant curtain You can picture it like a big keep-out sign that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. God the Father is set apart. Because of your sin, you can't come in. So God's presence is here, but it is literally veiled. But less than 24 hours after Jesus was speaking here, he was going to be lifted up on the cross to suffer the punishment for our sin that we had committed against him. And that giant curtain in the temple was going to be torn from top to bottom, signifying that we, based on the work of Jesus, can have direct access to God the Father. So we don't have to go through a priest, right? You don't have to go through a pastor. You have access to the ear of God the Father through Prayer. And and Jesus clarifies that we don't have to just rely on Him to go to the Father on our behalf. Jesus says, You will ask in my name because, as John said in chapter 1, verse 12, all who believe in Jesus, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. So, So, listen, if you are a child of God, you have access to the Father. If you're a child of God, you have access to the Father. Jesus says in verse 27, the Father himself loves you. You are his child. Now there's an important condition in verse 27. Did you see it when we were reading through it? There's an important condition. How, how do you become a child of God gaining access directly to the Father? By loving and believing in Jesus. Right? So God the Father loves those who love God the Son. And God the Father rejects those who reject God the Son. Not everyone is God's spiritual children. Not everyone will experience the fatherly love of God. But if you have placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are one of his children. You have a perfect Heavenly Father who loves you. And and by the way, if you just want a little tidbit to study out on your own uh, today, the Greek word for love here is actually phileo. It's not agape, which surprised me. Um, uh, We usually call that brotherly love, right? That's where Philadelphia comes from. But, But this is speaking of an emotional bond, right? A deep affection for. God the Father loves you and wants to communicate with you. And I think seeing the relationship as a perfect father with his children helps us understand how God loves us. I think that's how God wants us to frame up and understand his love, as a father loves his children. Uh, because you might sometimes hear God's love for us described almost as irrational. Uh, there's a popular song that describes God's love as a reckless love. Hmm, hmm, and if that doesn't sit right with you, maybe here's, here's, here's why. Um, as I was listening to Gary Becker last week talk about his daughter Rachel, by the way, wasn't that an amazing story? Awesome testimony about what God has done. If you missed it last week, you need to go back and listen to it online. And, and I, I just, it just was so impressed on me that Gary was ready to cash in his retirement, right, if necessary, in order to fund his daughter's surgery. And here's my question Is that irrational? i would argue no right that's right gary yeah right. i didn't even prep him for that but he was ready that's not a rational love right that's a father's love right that's a father's love that's what fathers do that's what they should do that's what they should want to do that's what their heart should tell them to do they love their kids like it makes sense because that's a father's love and if earthly flawed father's love like that how much more How much more does our perfect heavenly father love us? It's not irrational. It's not reckless. It's a fatherly love that he has for his children. We have access to that kind of father anywhere, anytime, because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen? What a promise. What a promise. Look at verse 28. I came from the father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the father. His disciple says, ah, Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, "Hmm, do you? (laughs) Do you now believe? (laughs) Jesus is seeking uh, to bring them to greater faith. and, And the disciples, at least momentarily, think that they have it, which is quite amusing, right? They're like, ah, now we get it. Now we get it. Now we know. This is why we believe. And it's just quite a swing in emotions for these disciples who had been so confused. And, and you should notice in these verses that there is nothing wrong in what the disciples were saying about Jesus, right? Jesus did know all things. That was true. Jesus did come from God and was going back to God. That was true. Uh, but you know what's worse than not understanding something fully? is not understanding something that you think you understand. That, that, that's when we get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Um, it's far better to know our limitations in our understanding. Uh, D.A. Carson says, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. And, and as parents, we often have to wait for our children to realize that they don't know something before they are willing to let us teach them what they don't realize that they don't know yet, right? Have you ever had to do that as a parent? They think they know. They know everything. They're eight, right? And so they don't want your help. They don't need your help. And so you just have to let them realize they don't actually know so they can let you teach them how to really understand something. And, and it's hard to read Jesus' response to the disciples here as anything other than a little a little cynical of, of what they have just said. Right? I, I think the disciples were genuine. They were trying, and they think that they had it. And Jesus is like, do you like now believe? And, and I wish I knew whether Jesus was putting the emphasis on the now part of that sentence, as in, wait, you didn't believe in me before now? Like, we spent three years together. Or, or I think more likely, he was questioning not whether they believed in him, but whether they really understood what he was saying. Because the hour for understanding, hadn't come yet. But it wouldn't be long. We we were almost there. So, So Jesus once again gives them a preview of what is about to transpire. That's in verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. The hour had come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, l- let's focus on the negative side of these verses first, and then we'll get to the positive. So Jesus here is, is warning them of greater trouble that was coming. Okay, you guys think you get it, but <laughs> it's about to get crazy, right? Things are about to go crazy. You, you might think that you're ready, but you're not. My hour has come, and that means you guys are going to be scattered, Right? And, and you're going to abandon me, but I'm not alone, because the Father is with me, which, which, which kind of strikes me as odd. It might strike you as odd as well in this context, because we know that Jesus is about to go to the cross, and as he takes our sin on himself, what is he going to cry out in that moment? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why does Jesus say that he's not alone? but that the Father is with him. It's possible that he is just speaking about the Father's presence up until the point of the cross, but but I think this is where it's probably helpful for us to keep both Jesus' humanity and divinity in view. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, he was going to be forsaken by the Father as he who knew no sin... Right? had our sin placed on him. In his humanity, Jesus was going to experience the wrath of God, not the love of God, because our sin was going to be on him. But in Jesus' divinity, I would submit that he was one with the Father to the very end, submitting to and carrying out the Father's eternal plan of redemption for us sinful humanity. Meanwhile, while all that's going on, the disciples are going to be scattered and their earthly troubles wouldn't be over with the resurrection. In verse 33, he reiterates that in this world, they aren't in their home stadium, right? They are in enemy territory. So in this world, we are going to have trouble, tribulation, and that's not news to you. You have experienced it this week, this month, this year. It happens to all of us. Trials are a part of life in a broken world. None of us should expect to be exempt. But there's a positive side to what Jesus is saying here as well in verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he doesn't just warn them of greater trouble. He also promises greater peace. Last week, We saw that Jesus promises to provide the disciples with joy. And here he is claiming that the peace they need is found in him. And that's a significant claim, right? If you want to find peace, you have to find it in me, Jesus says. And peace, according to Jesus, even in this verse, is not the absence of trouble. You see that? In this world, you're going to have trouble. Like that's, that's, a, that's, that's a given. That's happening, right? Which is interesting because most of the time, when we say we want peace, we're usually talking about circumstantial or relational peace, right? When the volume on all of our kids is turned up to 11 for some reason, right? And you're just like, why are we yelling? <laughs> like, what's going on right now, right? You just want some peace. When, when there's conflict in your family or in a relationship, you just want peace, When when we picture peace, think about the scenes that we usually envision, right? Maybe you picture watching the sunset over the ocean, right? And just listening to the sound of the waves. It's So peaceful, right? Maybe it's a lakefront cabin sitting in a rocking chair on the porch, looking out over the fog in the morning. Oh, man, over the lake. Our idea of peace is usually a setting that allows us to take that satisfied exhale, (sighs) right peace peace but that isn't biblical peace for our souls it's nice it's nice but that is not biblical peace for our souls i i always remember the way that dr tony evans described biblical peace he said picture an artist uh, who paints a scene of this intense storm So thunder and lightning and driving rain coming from dark clouds, waves crashing in the sea, and then in the bottom corner, the artist paints a little bird that's perched on a rock, and that bird is singing. And he says, this is biblical peace. When the storms of life are raging around us, but we are still singing. When, when the storms of life are raging around us, but we're still singing. Biblical peace is a calm in the middle of life's storms. So, so anyone can have a temporary feeling of peace in a tranquil setting, right? But what we need is a calm and a rest for our souls, no matter what. No matter what is happening around us, because life isn't a perpetual vacation, Right? We need real peace more than just a couple weeks a year, and that peace is a peace that can only be found in one place, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus wants us to experience a peace that is not dependent on our circumstances. Just like he wants you to have a joy that is not dependent on your circumstances. Because circumstances are far too unstable for us to place our peace in or our joy in. It, does, it doesn't work. So, so how can we have rest? How can we remain calm when there is chaos all around us? Only when we believe the last sentence of Jesus before he says, let's pray. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Believing that statement, I would argue, is the path to finding true biblical peace in your life. And let's think about this for a second. Jesus says, I have overcome the world which is quite a bold statement from someone who is about to experience a Roman crucifixion. He doesn't say this after the resurrection, right? He, he says this 24 hours before his crucifixion. Think about that. Either Jesus is who he says that he is, or he's crazy, right? Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Who says this stuff? knowing what the next 24 hours would entail, right? Jesus was walking to Gethsemane. He's going to be betrayed by a friend, arrested by soldiers, brought before religious authorities who would convict him of blasphemy, (laughs) making himself one with God. Uh, So in other words, telling the truth. They would convict him of blasphemy, but then bring him before Roman authorities accusing Jesus of insurrection, There would be false testimonies in a sham trial. The crowd would completely turn on Jesus, even choosing to release a known criminal so they could get their pound of flesh from Jesus. He would be beaten and tortured until he barely looked human. He would be forced to carry his own cross until he was so physically depleted that he collapsed under its weight. His hands and his feet would have spikes driven through them to attach his body to wooden beams. And the one who deserved a king's crown would instead be further mocked with a crown of thorns driven into his skull and everything about that scene says this is a man who's been overcome doesn't it that looks like someone being overcome but jesus prior to all this has the audacity from our human perspective to say that he has actually overcome the world the cross was not a picture of jesus's defeat it was a picture of Jesus' victory. Because this is why Jesus came. This was his rescue mission. Jesus, God himself, entered into our world that was broken because of our sin and rebellion against him. And Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. He overcame every worldly temptation. Because the world says, have it your way, right? At, at, at its root, all of our sin is based on trusting ourselves rather than trusting the good design and direction of God. But rather than falling prey to the world, Jesus lived in complete submission to the will of the Father, even though that included Jesus going to the cross, where he would die the death that you and I deserve to die. He took the just punishment for the sin that we committed against him on himself. But what looked like Jesus' defeat was actually Jesus' greatest victory over sin and over death. Because when Sunday morning came, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He ascended into heaven, promising to return. And the good news of the gospel is no matter what you have done, if you place your faith in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus, if if you say, Jesus, I need you to be the forgiver and king of my life, All your sins will be forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus credited to your formerly guilty account. You become part of the eternal family of God. You are adopted as one of his children, spiritually speaking, part of his eternal family. And you can experience true peace for your soul. Because no matter what comes, nothing is changing the reality that Jesus is the resurrected king. Right, that Jesus has overcome the world. The tomb is empty. So that means no matter what we face, right, no matter what circumstances come, no matter what this world throws at us, we can know Jesus has already overcome this. He has overcome the world. We are never forging a new path or fighting a new fight. We are fighting in a battle that Jesus has already won. So, are you anxious? Are you worried, constantly feeling angry, or have you experienced the peace that comes from knowing and trusting Jesus? This is what I want for you. This is what I want for all of us, because I can't imagine having to go through all the trouble in this world without Jesus. Right? It's too much. Wouldn't you agree? Like my heart breaks for people that think they have to face this stuff on their own. They think that they have to try to find peace in circumstances or relationships or all these other things. It's not stable enough. There's too much. It gets thrown off too quickly. And so and so here's my conclusion. This is what I want for everyone. Don't face trouble from the world without first finding peace in Jesus. Don't try to face trouble from the world without first finding peace in Jesus. Right? Too often we live like we have to overcome the world. Right? It's all on us. It rises and falls with us. No, no, no. We should live like we know that Jesus has already overcome. He's already overcome. So in this world, we will have trouble, but we can take heart. We can take courage. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that I can pray directly to you this morning. I don't have to go through anybody else. We have direct access to our perfect Father because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you that as a result of being on the other side of the empty tomb, we can have a greater understanding, we can have greater access, we can have greater faith, and even though we will have greater trouble, we can also have greater peace. Because it's not all about us. It's not about having the right circumstances or everything work out, temporarily speaking. It's about knowing that Jesus is alive. That Jesus is overcome. That your love doesn't fail. That you are so good. I pray that we would find our peace and rest in Jesus. Because it's the only place that it's safe from the storms that are inevitable in our lives. I pray that we'd fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. I pray all of this in that name, the name of Jesus. Amen.